Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Welcome. I'm your producer, Molly Stevens, and here on the Leaders Table podcast, it's our job to dissect leaders in policy and education to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to empower you. This episode, we've got Matt Candler, founder and CEO of 4.0 Schools. Matt and his team have built schools, incubated ed tech companies, built houses, and organized communities, and yet he's one of the most humble leaders we've ever met. There are some real gems in this conversation about making schools with communities, not for them, along with practices you can apply to boost your creativity and productivity. We really think you'll enjoy this conversation, and while we're at it, we'd love to know who you'd like us to invite to the leader's table and what you'd like us to ask them. Email your ideas for future guests and fun interview questions to leaderstable at educationalequity.org. And now here's Matt Candler at the leader's table. Matt Candler, thanks for joining the Leaders Table. Happy to be with you. Looking forward to it. So you founded an organization called 4.0, and um, your website is one of the most fascinating descriptions of a group of innovators in education that I've uh, read thus far. You, on the website, you say that 4.0 is driving innovation in American education, a place that's resisted change for decades, it's taking a diverse set of people who take the work seriously without taking themselves too seriously. Well, you say we've built charter schools, we've run ed tech companies, we've built houses in organized communities. We do as much as we can with a small team, a smaller team as possible. Tell us a little bit about your work, about 4.0, and how exactly you came to uh, to lead such an interesting group of people in education. Well, it's great to be with you, and, and uh, I'm psyched to be a part of y'all's community. Um, I'm, mo- I'm 47. I moved to New Orleans the summer of 2006 after having making a, made a few trips here in the few months after Katrina hit the area and six years ago, we launched 4.0, um, embarrassing how bad that original business plan was, how far from what we do now it was, but that's, I guess the process of, um, building an organization and iterating as you go. It's 4.0 uh, has evolved to be a really fascinating place. And I think a very big, it's just a, a very interesting, um, relationship I have personally with the organization because it's now no longer the group of 10, 11 people that I work with on a daily basis, but it really has become a community. Um, I'll just, a few, a few quick milestones that sort of represent this 
transition from me thinking about running an organization and thinking about staff to thinking about being a part of the community. When we first launched 4.0, you know, we used the, the official name of the company is 4.0 Schools. And the first iteration of the organization looked a lot like a more traditional late stage school incubator. Mm-hmm. Folks want to start a school. They come to us. We incubate their, them and their idea for a year or two. We put them in existing schools that we think are doing great things with kids via osmosis. They get that knowledge and that exposure. Then they write a charter app. They get a charter approved and they go serve children. And when we were going through that in the first year or two, we had a few uh, founders or school leaders, didn't really use the word entrepreneur back then, back on us and say, hey, the school I want to build doesn't exist anywhere. So why do I have to go do all this residential work when there's no school to visit? There's elements, but I've visited all the schools I want to steal from, but there's a whole bunch of pieces of the school in my head that I'm going to have to build myself. Hmm. And that was really the beginning of us stepping back and saying, oh man, maybe we don't know all there is to know about school creation. And maybe we should create more of a dialogue with the people that we are training um, and mix what we've seen as good practice and what people are curious about might work better than what we have. And, and that's really been the story of the last six years uh, of an organization eating a whole plate load of humble pie early and realizing, I actually don't know that much about starting schools. I've got as many school startups and launches under my belt as, as some people, but I'm growing more and more curious uh, and less certain of what makes a truly breakthrough school for the future and for a diverse set of kids that most schools don't um, serve than I did 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Hmm. Now, your bio says that you both studied uh, school improvement at, the, at Kellogg. I think that means the Kellogg Graduate School. Um, and you've opened over 30 schools um, at KIPP. You helped lead and uh, the New York City Center for Charter School Ex- Excellence and New Schools for New Orleans. I mean, I, I think that we'd be we would be hard pressed to talk to anyone with more experience at school startup. Which of those experiences have taught you the most? Yeah, it's it's hard to pick one, I, and they've all been in part of a path. Um, I think New Schools for New Orleans was most humbling. Um, of those experiences. I, I really am forever grateful for the people I worked with at KIPP. The three years I was there were a remarkable period in the foundation's growth. I got there, there were five schools. There were actually two that first summer and I watched the first three launch and we launched 10 schools the next year, 17 the next and another 10 the next year. And, um, it's just remarkable. Um, but I wasn't as reflective then as I, uh, I'm now, and I I certainly, I didn't know much when I went to KIPP. Um, I'd been starting schools in the Southeast, but I was learning a lot. And I think NSNO, I I came into New Orleans thinking that I knew how to start schools. I really, it's embarrassing to even hear the words come out of my mouth, but I came into this, to this town with an undue and overdeveloped sense of pride and confidence about what schools, the families of New Orleans children needed. Mm. And why, the reason why the NSNO experience is so powerful for me is I think even now, 10 years after starting there, I'm continuing to realize 
huge gaps in my perception of what should be done and what could be done. And it's not that I'm not proud of the work we've done in New Orleans. I'm very proud of the work we've done over the last 10 years. But I think I started to realize there, and 4.0 has been a place where I've tried to work out more proactively, that I was doing school reform to people, to families, to neighborhoods, to cities. Um, and I really should be doing it with them. And I give credit to Sarah Houston and a lot of New Orleanians that I met when I was at New Schools for New Orleans for putting those seeds uh, in the ground with me and pushing me on that uh, and really beginning to help me see um, my un- my overdeveloped sense of certainty um, was un- was uh, uncalled for. And and what it, what it does is it actually develops less capable schools and less capable learning environments. It's not just that it's um, unfair and inequitable and uh, the wrong thing to do the humans that you're trying to serve, but the, the products of that mindset are suboptimal. Mm-hmm. And that's been uh, humbling, humbling. And um, I, I don't think any other city taught me that the way New Orleans has been teaching me that. You know, I want to, I want to really dig in on that with you and that you're, your humility and your well-learned humility is is so striking to me. It's um, it it's it's both fascinating and I think we have a lot to learn there. One of the ways I want to do that is by reading something you wrote for uh, on your on your medium.com blog in 2016. This is back in May. Uh, there was a piece that you wrote uh, titled "On Equity and Education, Both Kinds," and you start that piece by offering two uh, definitions of equity. Uh, one is Definition one was fairness or justice in the way people are treated. And a second definition, a share in a company, a share of a company stock. And you go on to say, for most of my career as an educator, I've considered the first of these definitions, that is fairness or justice, more important than the second. But after five years of unlearning at five at 4.0, I'm sorry, it's still, learned, it's still called 4.0 as far as I know, uh, I've come to believe the second definition is worth more of my time. Tell me a little bit about that. Is that is that tied up in that, in these um, these lessons of humility that you're sharing with us here? For sure, for sure. It's it's tied up in a growing awareness of my own privilege uh, as a white man, as a white man who grew up in uh, wealth in the South, uh, as a father of three, um, and I think. I will forever be unlearning what hundreds of years of uh, structural racism and privilege that I have benefited from have been teaching me um, about power and its allocation. And so I I do believe that more and more each day that um, with, if we go back to this concept of to and with, uh, for most of my career, I felt like I was doing school reform to people, and wouldn't they be grateful for it? And uh, it's difficult to do all this and not throw out the, the, the upside. The academic improvement we've seen in New Orleans is real, and I'm not questioning mm-hmm. that. But the mindset I have, the things that I can control as a human being and, and as an actor in this play, um, it's imperative that I understand that and I challenge it 
And those two definitions for me call out this distinction um, and hold accountable in a way that I previously didn't understand the old way of thinking, which is a still the existing way. It's, I'm not, I haven't figured all this out, but I am trying to walk forward with a sense of awareness that there are deep-seated and hardwired elements of my own identity, of structural power that make me think I can do good, but not really restructure the way power is allocated and continue to do things to or on behalf of or for other people without really un, un, uh, unlocking and then sharing some of the power that, that I share and all of the ways that my privilege and the benefits of being educated and being able to choose and have access uh, to so many things. That, what I love about that definition, which, which is, I just found in a dictionary, I think it's Webster, is that it's just so striking. And we use those words and we don't think about the differences. And you can go your whole career and do things to folks thinking that it's the right thing. Uh, and I think it is much harder and much deeper and a complex discussion uh, about do we want to share power um, or do we just want to do things to folks? And I think un until I started to swallow hard about that, that I really wasn't interested in redistributing power, I just wanted to do good for people. Um, and, and, and I think that's a growing awareness and just a little smidgen of knowledge that I'm trying to develop and get uh, increase about that, about the structural problems that we actually are very much working in and around. It's humbling and it's hard and it's difficult. But again, it is more hopeful for me because I think of the institutions that have the capacity to reset that and to build a better version of our country there's no other place that can actually um, be where we redistribute power, where we do create true uh, equity. Mm -hmm. And that's exciting so, and, and it's humbling too. So if I were a young woman, much like many of the, of our listeners, and I were to be a fly on the wall in a space that you were leading today versus five years ago versus 10 years ago, what would I see that is so obviously different in the way that you lead that I would say, yeah, you know, there, there's, that's how I know that Matt has changed his very daily practices of leadership because he's doing that. What, what would that thing be? Well, I don't know. That's a humbling question. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you would see. Um, I think that um, today so one, I think that pride, I mean, I very much thought I knew what a great school looked like mm -hmm. when I moved to New Orleans. And I would hit the streets and talk to families and tell them that I had the perfect school for them. And I had my own kids, and then I talked to my friends running some of those schools and said, hey, we want to be a part of this school, but we might want to pick our kids up earlier. Can we do that? No, that's not really what we do. And so that over the last 10 years, my kids are 11, 9, and 7, and I think what I realized is, um, yeah, I was building schools that would be great for other people's children to quote, quote the must read Lisa Delpit book. Um, <laughs> but I want something different for my own kids. And so I think first you'd hear a parent talking, um, and someone who is 
seen in front of his face this glaring inconsistency between what I want for other folks' children and my own. And so my hope is you would hear a tone of acknowledgement of that um, and some thoughtfulness that wasn't uh, in place when, uh, and I'm not suggesting that parenthood is the only thing that, that um, has changed that, but, but one thing that, it, that feels different is a higher ratio of curi- curiosity uh, to confidence uh, and, and hubris at the extreme of the confidence scale. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, I think you see that play out in the techniques that I consider worth honing the skill sets that I'm trying to fine tune. I, for example, at 4.0, we are trying to find ways to collect data about what makes a great test, uh, not what generates student achievement. And those are very important to me, but I am so much more curious today about what a one hour or a one day or a one week test of a potential school model, for example, might be uh, than I was back then. I was more concerned with a school that had proven itself. And I would use words like that. Like so often in the conversations that say, well, Matt, we don't want, we love your crazy ideas, but we only quote, I'm using air quotes. Y'all can't see me. We only quote <laughs> scale what works, you know? And so I'd use phrases like scale what works. And I thought that way, that I had found what works, and so I was going to be get to work scaling it. And I, today, yes, I want great ideas to scale, but I think that there are a lot of folks in the world that are ready to do that. What I don't think we spend enough time on, what I want to do is, like, how do I get better at higher frequency iteration? How do I get better at genuine feedback? And so what I hope you'd hear in the 47 version, year old version, is someone who uh, not just wants feedback, but is reacting to that feedback at a higher frequency. My reps, the space between them are, is shorter. Um, I execute my day and my week and my year in shorter bursts, and I take feedback and I process it, and then I, re- I, I ship version two, three, four, five faster, where in the past I might have spent a month on version one. Uh, these days, if you give me a month, I would strive to build version one in a week and go through two or three iterations uh, by the time my deadline came around. So, you know, that uh, as long as those are all sort of techniques and we can talk more about like productivity and things like that, but that, that feels very different than the kinds of things I talked about and cared about back then. And what are you, what are you proudest of, of, uh, of your career? I mean, starting more than 30 schools, leading an organization, making an impact in at least two cities, if not more. Uh, what's the thing that you point to and say, you know, that this is, this is my proudest achievement. Um, I think the thing is, this is, I'm proudest of this and I'm also most scared about it and humbled by it, but, um, through no clarity of my own vision, only through like the honest feedback of people who are willing to take a bet, on 4.0 in our early years when we were still, we're always figuring it out. But there, this has become an incredibly diverse community. Um, our last cohort of tiny fellows was represent, there were more than 56% of those folks who were uh, self-identified as people of color. A majority of those folks are African-American. Uh, more than 70% of those folks were women. 
And, and um, I'm proud of the fact that as a white male who knows nothing about the experience of being a woman in this country and nothing about being a person of color in this country, that for some reason far beyond my own capacity, folks have chosen this community to be a place where they want to get better. And they, they trust us with some very tiny little chunk of their path as professionals serving children. And that is profoundly humbling to me mm. that people would let me have a shot at being a part of their path. And that it's, it is hard to imagine why people would trust me with that. And I take that so seriously that people would choose to come spend their time with us. And that I'm really proud of that, but I'm terrified that I'm wholly incapable of serving uh, these folks who are choosing to take time out of their lives and choosing the careers they've chosen over others uh, and that they've trusted us just to give them some feedback on like a little prototype. Uh, that to me is very uh, significant. You know, my, I talk often about my inner teacher and my inner entrepreneur, like always yelling at one another. <laughs> and I think this is maybe the first time in my career where both of those folks internally, the inner teacher and the inner entrepreneur get, uh, get a lot of joy and purpose out of the work. So, you know, yeah, since, that's a hard thing. Yeah. Since you spend your mo most of your time these days with entrepreneurs, what do you think that the entrepreneurs have the most to learn from teachers? Uh, I, I, the more and more, I think those, those monikers are really problematic. Um, I hate, I hate when people are forced to ask whether they're both. So many of the people we talk to, uh, with the best ideas and the best skills in the practice of entrepreneurship would have never used that word to describe themselves. Um, my other struggle with that is entrepreneurship is wrapped up in um, risk-taking and mythology of being able to quit your job and try something. And isn't that amazing? And there's so much about privilege and structure Mm -hmm. uh, and power imbalance that is embedded in our understanding of that word. It, it I, don't, I try to use it less and less. But the, the, to, to roll with it instead of just throw it back at you, what I think is so compelling about these cultures, like there's a culture of commitment to students and doing whatever it takes that teachers and educators have down better than, than entrepreneurs. Um, but what entrepreneurship um, in its best form uh, brings to the practice of, of teaching. What my inner entrepreneur shouts most often at my inner teacher is, this is a process, Matt, and the process is not perfect. And those families and students that you care so much about are part of this messy, iterative process of getting better and better over time. And so my inner teacher shouts back and says, but I have to be perfect for them. I can't mess this up. And then my inner entrepreneur shouts back and says, but you if you put them at the, if you ship a crappy version to those same families and students in an authentic way that is wrapped up in you caring what they think about that crappy version so that the next version can be better because of their input, then that part of you that's so passionate about those kids and those families will see what I'm talking about, that they're as core to this process. In fact, they are more core to entrepreneurship done well than teaching done well, because 
in that world, you can go your whole career and do teaching to kids. You can build the perfect lesson plan and make it all about you being perfect for them and never actually do it with them. But over in my world as an entrepreneur, I can't go two days without doing it with. Everything about this process is with because I respond to their feedback between these rapid iterations that your inner teacher thinks is just you know, imperfect and lazy. But in fact, because it's iterative, it's actually done well, more humanizing and more, more about people than teaching mm-hmm. when teaching's not done at its best. What advice do you give today to folks who want to start schools that you did not give five years ago? What's yeah, like the, don't start the a thing? Yeah, yeah don't, don't. <laughs> so I, this, this takes, don't start a school yet. You don't start a school yet. So I'll go back to my favorite metaphor about 4.0 and it's, it's related to food, which is always a fun place to steal metaphors from. So I think that uh, the industry of food and, and the path to becoming a chef and a restaurateur has been transformed by two very simple technologies, the pop-up dinner and the food truck. And so we've structured the whole 4.0 experience around these two ideas that for anyone thinking about building a school, it's much like the way a chef thought about building a restaurant 10, 20 years ago, when the only option was find a millionaire, convince them that your idea is awesome, get their money, build the building, hire the staff, cook the food, open up, and pray that everyone shows up. And that's how we used to do restaurants. But these days, and if you're in a city like New Orleans with an incredibly rich tapestry of fairly new cuisine, when I moved to New Orleans, there wasn't a lot of diversity in the food. It was great, but it was mostly New Orleans Cajun and Creole food. But it's an incredibly rich tapestry now because most of the new restaurants that have come online have come online through this sequence of step one, the pop-up dinner. Call your friend who's got a, a restaurant that's closed on a Sunday give them a six pack of their favorite IPA, borrow the keys and do a one meal version of your restaurant with folks that know you five, 10, 15, 20 people, just one meal version. And then if that takes on, then do a food truck, go spend a few grand bar buy or borrow the money to try food truck and run that for a month or six months or a year. And, and doing the thousand dollar and the $10,000 before you do the million dollar version mm-hmm. of your school or for anything for that matter is just a more responsible way to spend money and resources, especially if they're public dollars that you're eventually going to spend. But more importantly, it's so much more fun because you, that process is you and your students and families getting together for a version, a small, tiny, imperfect version two years quicker then it would be if you did the traditional method of I'm going to go away, I'm going to come back with a perfect plan, the 400-page version that I'll put into a charter app, get the money. And, you, you know, that's the way we used to do uh, restaurants. We don't do it that way anymore. But so many of the paths available to aspiring founders are still the old way of doing it. And if I could tell anybody one thing, it was don't stop thinking of yourself as a school builder and start thinking of yourself as someone who's going to run a one day or a one hour or a three hour pop up version of a new learning space and challenge yourself not even to use the word school, use the word learning space and get to work with the hard, hard challenge of 
distilling, boiling down this gigantic, overly complex school that's in your head into a one-hour experience and have the guts to go find families and students to try that and then ask them to give you feedback. And when they give you the pithy, sweet, oh, that was nice, or thanks for taking care of my kids, like hunt them down and pursue them until they tell you straight up what they liked and didn't like. Mm. And then start iterating on that. And so to me, there's nothing more exciting for my inner teacher to see someone come to 4.0 and be in the community and break free of this idea that to have more impact for kids, they have to start a school and it has to be done the way we've been chartering schools for 20 years and that they have to win the whatever it is lottery, series of lotteries to build that million dollar institution without ever having tested it and saying, oh my gosh, I can start asking families and students about my school tomorrow. And within days, they realize that that, that a school built that way is going to be a better school. It's a more hopeful school. It's a more engaging space. And it's, and it's just more fun when you start learning appropriate ways to fumble your way towards a school as opposed to the be perfect that same mindset that we have when we're a teacher that says all lives uh, in my classroom are this sh- these lives are on my shoulders and I feel so responsible that I can't even try one new thing because it's just too much pressure. You know, that is so wound up in our identities as educators mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of work and a lot of support and a lot of encouragement and people cheering you on to break free of that and build new sets of habits. So that, that, that advice sounds quicker than that. Sure. No, that, that advice sounds uh, more like the thinking of large-scale product designers who want to be user experience-oriented um, and oriented toward the end user than it is to traditional uh, education design or, or school leadership. But um, it, do, when you say that to, to, to young leaders or, or older leaders that come to you and say, listen, I want to be a part of the 4.0 family. I want to start a school. Do they look at you cross-eyed or do they kind of kind of get it and trust trust that it's coming from a place of experience? No, I, we just did an essentials workshop a few weeks ago with uh, just school builders. And um, some folks um, started to see this new approach within a few hours. Some folks came to it on their own. But there are a lot of folks out there who still question it. And they're right to question it because philanthropy lawmaking, power, does not trust this method yet. There are not, there's not widespread agreement that we should let students and families in on the process. Mm-hmm. There's still very much a power structure that says, no, 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 we need to do charter schools to people uh, because it's risky, and if we mess it up, we can't afford the political capital. And I agree with that. You know, we have to fiercely regulate and fiercely oversee uh, things like charter schools, because these are sacred public goods we're dealing with and, and families and lives. However, there's very little faith and very few resources up here in the early stages of the work. And so it's very appropriate for someone to be skeptical of me because where's the money for that? Where, where is someone saying, yes, go out and try that weekend version. And I'll totally support that. It, so much of the existing allocation of resources is skewed to this let's only scale what works mindset. Um, and it's not just a mindset. I, you know, 
sometimes when I paint a picture of the future for people, I draw a number line and I, on the left, represent $10 investments. And on the right, I represent billion-dollar assessments with a power of 10 hash mark in between. And if you mapped out where all the philanthropy and government money lived, it would be parked in a giant red mountain over on the right. <laughs> big, big bets on really exciting ideas that will change millions of lives. That is appropriate for some ideas. But if you look at any other well-developed portfolio strategy, you will see a more balanced allocation of dollars over on the left. What I refer to, of, I, I want to live in this future where there's a blue plateau of money, a different, a different shape where we have lots of money being spent at the $10,000, $10,000 level and still great ideas being scaled. But you know, one thing that, that the software industry and the Valley have done uh, well is to provide an opportunity for ideas to be invested in early. And if they blow up, they blow up. But there's good allocation of capital from idea all the way to massive scale. And in our world, there is no money. There's no support. There's no political will for the early stages. So much of what we're trying to do, I'm very patient with people who come to me and go, yeah, man, I'm not sure I buy it yet. Mm -hmm. Because no one else has said, yeah, I'm coming up to meet you where your idea isn't perfect yet. And I think it's imperative for those of us in policymaking and those of the folks in y'all's community who are committed to that and see the value of it to understand how important it is to create a path uh, from exploring to testing responsibly to then building small versions to scaling. Because without that, we miss this very powerful message we've sent to generation after generation of people curious to solve big problems that we're not really interested in new ideas in education. Mm-hmm. We don't really want you to do that here. Go somewhere else to do that. And that's just had a devastating impact um, on the perception uh, of the field. And, and that's, that's not to diss on anyone to choose, who's, who's educating now. The amount of creativity someone has to display to be successful in the face of so much dysfunction is remarkable in and of itself. But there are a lot of people choosing to respond to a healthier series of investment um, reminders that, yes, we will be there at the idea, the test, and the go-big scale. Uh, And I want more people to hear that more often in our work. Mm -hmm. So, Matt, let me ask you a few questions about how you, uh, you organize yourself. So you manage a family you manage a team at 4.0. You you manage uh, yourself and other people, projects, probably still schools that um, that that require things of you or ask you for advice and counsel. How do you keep it all together? What's uh, what are the two or three uh, practices, apps, tools, or 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 daily things that um, that help you run your life and uh, and and keep it all together? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Allie Dunn is one of my colleagues. We were um, we were having an unconference uh, a few weeks ago, actually a few months ago, which I love, by the way. We get together and we do this during staff time together sometimes, and we just give each other 10, 15-minute blocks, and you build an agenda when you get there. And, um, so anyway, I was doing a session with Allie on storytelling, and she looked me now, and she's like, Matt, you're a really visual um, communicator. You should start sketching more. So I've got an iPad and started sketching out all of my slides there. And it's just, 
I don't know. It's, it's, it's had a transformative effect uh, on my storytelling and my communicating. And I think sometimes I hesitate to sketch something because a lot of my colleagues that know me, I can start sketching and then just kind of go off. But I think it's been important for me to just acknowledge that I, um, I have constraints as a learner and constraints uh, as a thinker, and I need to um, own those and be aware of them and work within them. And uh, that, that, I don't want that to sound trite or trivial, but we have a bunch of tools that we use in um, F4.0, and I would, I would argue so there's a couple things. So one, I just as far as tools, the iPad that I use both to do my um, slide decks and to, to write ideas out for my team has proved to be real transformational for me because it gives me the appropriate amount of constraints, but it allows me to get my thoughts down and then share them digitally with folks. Um, and it really helps as a CEO. I assume too much. Um, I assume everyone knows what I'm thinking too often. I assume that if I can just spit it out and people hear it once or twice, um, that it's enough. And Lencioni's recent book, Four Obsessions of a CEO, it emphasizes this point is you have to constantly over-communicate and repeat. And that's not because your listeners are dumb. It's because you're dumb as a communicator and you've assumed too much and you're actually not as clear as you think you are. That's so, so interesting. So instead of right, instead of so, long emails, you, you write out slides for, for big ideas. Yes, and then I send the sketch. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, and you create a culture of people being like, I totally don't understand that drawing. For some reason, you know, it's easier for people to push back on a drawing, especially if it's quickly sketched out. I go back to this, like the culture and the norm of what we call a minimum viable product. Like it takes a lot of work to build a culture around the idea that uh, this isn't this is a crappy prototype. So don't wordsmith it. Don't spell check it. Just get to the essence with me, you know. And so you have to model that. So one technique we use at 4.0 is we have a prototype table. It's a little bar table that we have in the middle of our space, and you can put something up there, but it can't be a final product. It has to be like a rough prototype. So finding people in my life and taking the time to get that discipline of a rough prototype out has transformed our culture. Another habit that I think is really powerful is what I mentioned before, like if someone gives me a deadline or if we give each other deadlines at 4.0, one of the techniques we try and follow through on consistently is, okay, at a minimum, what I'm going to ship you then is going to be 2.0. So I'll set myself an agenda, a, a deadline halfway through that time frame ship it to you or to someone else as a prototype, get feedback, iterate on it. And then when I hit that deadline, I'm actually hitting it with a 2.0. And so it's just this basic idea of splitting time in half. And whenever anyone gives you a constraint, even if it's 60 seconds, give yourself 30 seconds, write it down, get somebody to share it, or just change your mindset and pretend to give your own self feedback and then iterate and go to version two. And so, you know, this is a technique that that I think is really powerful that starts to, for educators, for me, my inner educator really needs that because he wants to be perfect for everything, for every kid. It's mm -hmm. very hard for him to ship something imperfect. And so I, love that. I think a lot of my techniques, you know, are really just embracing that. Um, and that, and that I have to sell myself on that. And, and that does take a lot of reps and a lot of habits. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, those are, those are a couple of ideas. And Walk us through the first first hours of your day from waking up till about, let's say, 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, yeah, three kids. Um, two of my daughters go to an experimental school that we launched last year called NOLA Micro Schools. 
Um, this is a really wonderful school that I've just been humbled by every time I show up. Um, and my youngest son, uh, my only son, goes to the ISL, which is International School of Louisiana. He's in a Spanish immersion charter school. Um, so my wife and I uh, alternate taking them. Um, if I'm taking them to school, we're there by, we drop Warren off at 745 and the girls at 8. And uh, I'm at the office by then. Uh, if anybody's waiting for the time when you ex- exercise, don't worry, it won't be anywhere in the schedule. Um, <laughs> so uh, I get to work. Um, I keep reminders. I'm back. You know, I used to be obsessed about um, productivity apps. And I'm recently just focusing on native Apple apps and keeping everything in reminders. I keep an open notes file uh, archive. Stephen Johnson um, has a great technique for this uh, in his book, um, where great ideas come from. He references um, his techniques for just kind of getting things down on paper. Uh, what Covey refers to as the um, um, uh, leak proof inbox or just where you just dump stuff. So I'll open the day looking at what is in the to-do list that wasn't done the day before. I'll do my best to not touch email in those three hours. When I do, I try and batch process it. I don't always do that well. Um, but yeah, the goal of the first hour or two is, um, get the top two or three things on the list for the day established. Brad Feld, who is a venture capitalist out of Boulder, has recently shifted his day to not have any meetings, take no meetings before 11. It's obviously more luxurious as an investor to get to do that. But we've set up the concept of maker time at 4.0. Every Monday is sacred maker time. No 4.0 team meetings, no one-on-one meetings. And to the extent that you can prevent it, no external meetings. And we try to get maker time at the beginning of every workday. And some folks are in jobs, they don't have the luxury of flexing with that. But I, by nine o'clock, I've had hopefully at least an hour of maker time where I'm thinking about long-term 4.0 stuff. Um, great book by a guy named Dick Chait, who I use with my board as a framework, I, which I use with my board as a framework for three types of work, fiduciary, just basic health is uh, maps to alter for and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but basic stuff and strategic is where most CEOs think they need to live. And then generative is like dent the universe. And I'm trying to get a few hours a week in that space. I don't always get it, but usually it's the morning. So a number one rule is, is to the extent you're capable, protect those three hours um, and eliminate. I, I tried to do as little, um, email, scheduling, responsive stuff. Um, and if I get my tasks done earlier the night before, I sort of reward myself with that, that I've cleared it out. And if I get to inbox zero or inbox close to zero, mm-hmm. uh, then I can you know, do that high-level thought work in the morning. Absolutely. Matt, I just have one final question for you. just appreciate you spending so much time with us and, uh, and your generosity. Um, let me ask you, what, what advice would you give to your 23-year-old self today? Mm. I'll tell you one thing that I do differently now than then. Um, I mean, it's maybe a weird answer, but my hobby right now is, uh, building motorcycles. I really, um, enjoy it. And, um, it allows me to be creative and it allows me to, um, fail a little bit more frequently. Again, you know, my inner teacher is not stressed out about my hobby. Um, and, I, and, and the reason I mention that is, is um, it, it goes back a little bit to 
um, this concept that I had in my 20s about the trajectory of my career, that it was a generally a sort of northeastward trajectory with the x-axis being time and the, the y-axis being ability to impact kids and, their, and make their lives better. And I've embraced the idea that that, that x-axis, the x-axis is a given of life. We're all getting older. But if you think about instead of a y-axis of like impact and power, right? Think of a y-axis kind of like the six degrees of seven bacon of like how far away, I'm, I'm speaking to everyone's inner teacher, how far away from kids can you be and be effective and happy? And I've found that um, there's, a, there's an upper and lower bound for that. Like I don't, I think being a superintendent or being in administration or being too far away from folks uh, is hard for me to sustain. And being in the classroom by myself is hard for me to sustain. And 4.0 is right within my personal window uh, of effectiveness uh, and leverage because I get to see students and teachers through the entrepreneurs and school founders that I work with. So my inner teacher is happy. He sees children re- on a regular basis, but he's helping people um, that are only one degree away from kids. Now, he's not helping people that are three or four or five degrees away. Um, and so I that has been a really um, um, healthy and freeing framework to, I wish I could emphasize to my 20-year-old self even more so that your job, Matt, is primarily to explore the bounds of that and figure out where you're going to be most effective and not presume that distance from children or amount of these sort of traditional um, measures of power and impact, uh, are net, which tend to sort of skew to this overdeveloped sense of scale and bigness, um, those aren't necessarily the places you're going to be most effective. So my track has been sort of this up and down sine wave of finding the boundary and coming back down and going back up and coming back down. And that, that feels really freeing to me. And, and I, um, I, w- I wish my 20 year old self would have known about that, um, framework earlier than he did. Hmm. Matt, thank you so much for joining the Legis table. We just, uh, we just really appreciate your insights, your honesty, your incredible, the learning that you've shared here and the humility just shine through in everything that you've shared with us. So thank you. It's an honor to be with y'all. I'm just a fan of the work y'all are doing in your community. And if I can be an asset or a support to anyone, um, I'd be honored to, to play that role. Thanks for we- letting me. We look forward to calling on you. Thank you. You betcha. Y'all take care. You too. Like this interview? Subscribe to the Leaders Table podcast on SoundCloud. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the Leaders Table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. <laughs>